Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time uh, where we talk about science and skepticism. So as always, you can find me throughout the week on the Facebook page, and you can find this and other uh previous podcasts, or I'm sorry, previous episodes as a podcast uh, via the website evidencebasederrata.com or on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, so I want to start out tonight with just a tiny bit of uh, schadenfreude uh, for me and hopefully for some of you out there too. Um, It's been a long, rough week, and sometimes you just want to be able to remember that you were right. Um, And so, yeah, I, uh, you know, I love space. Uh, As much as I say that I prefer the ocean sometimes, uh, space is extremely interesting, and I do hope that one day uh, we will go up into the stars and branch out of the solar system and do all of that amazing stuff because, you know, humanity really does have to eventually get out of the solar system because it's not going to be here forever. However, I have been rather dubious about the prospect of manned missions to Mars, given our current level of technology. And so it turns out that I was probably right. And so it turns out that my skepticism was warranted, because you might remember the flashy claims of the Mars One company, that Dutch company that was running a competition for volunteers to go on a one-way mission to Mars to begin the first steps towards a permanent settlement on the Red Planet. Well, as of the 15th of uh, January, Mars One has been declared bankrupt. Apparently, they didn't actually have a business plan, for instance, Um, and they didn't really have any, you know, idea of what they were doing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so apparently their entire business plan was to ask uh, regular people to volunteer and thus have that sort of hype involved in that to make that enough of a uh, sort of revenue stream from people who would want to be interested in that to drum up enough hype for funding that would have come from things like media deals uh, to record the process. But the company hadn't actually secured any of those deals. And in fact, they hadn't even really talked to and especially hadn't hired any experts. Um, And so MIT research, for instance, showed that our current technology isn't yet advanced enough to maintain an atmosphere on Mars that would allow for humans to survive on the harsh planet. And so the research also indicated that uh, given the estimates that they were showing, it wouldn't be enough food to sustain the astronauts for any length of time. And so, yeah, the whole thing was basically just a boondoggle. And so, yeah, um, I'm not the least bit surprised. And it does make me kind of happy to see that this is not 
uh, going forward because I think it was just a terrible idea from the get-go. Now, obviously, some things can be done in the private sector when it comes to space. I'm still dubious of private space uh, much more uh, companies, much more than I am of uh, you know, the prospects of NASA doing things in space. I think NASA is amazing and wonderful, and it should be funded, and it should be the one having the money go to it and have actual government scientists hired rather than farming it out to private industry. Um, I think that that is just a disaster waiting to happen. Um, but of course, if you're a regular listener, you know <laughs> uh, my feelings on capitalism in general. Um, I'm not a fan in case uh, that wasn't coming through clearly <laughs> enough. Um, but yeah, speaking of NASA, let's talk about something that is very, very bittersweet. Um, I've Missed it last week. Uh, I just wasn't feeling well, but I still want to talk about it because it is so important. And so um, I just I don't want to miss the opportunity to get to talk about it a little bit. So um, I hope you don't mind. But uh, so NASA announced last week that after 15 years of great work on the uh, red planet, the Opportunity rover has officially been uh, declared to have its operations be over. Uh, and again, it's bittersweet because you'd want it, you know, we all want it to have, you know, roared back to life and been able to do more, but it did so much amazing work while it was there. And, you know, it's definitely, you know, it was supposed to be, uh, <laughs> I think of, you know, a three hour tour, <laughs> um, you know, it was supposed to only do this very short amount of work and it, worked for, you know, 15 years. So that's pretty amazing. I was there with the team as these commands went out into the deep sky. Thomas Zerbuchin, an, an associate administrator of NASA's science mission directorate, said in a news conference at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. I learned this morning that we had not heard back and our beloved opportunity remains silent. It is therefore... It is, it is therefore that I am standing here with a sense of deep appreciation and gratitude that I declare the Opportunity Mission as complete and with it the Mars Exploration Rover Mission as complete. Now, um, the rover first fell silent on June the 10th of last year when its solar panels were covered uh, in dust by a planet-wide solar, uh, sorry, dust storm, but, uh, you know, unfortunately it just wasn't able to be recovered. Now all is not lost, of course, because curiosity is still going strong. It's actually, uh, powered by a nuclear, um, power source rather than by solar. So it's, uh, you know, doing just fine. And so one more, uh, small space story that I wanted to talk to, uh, be talk about because it's so interesting. Uh, and so I have been talking about this for several weeks, uh, which is the uh, mission that has been, again, a tacked on mission, uh, New Horizons 
its main mission was to go to Pluto, which it did and just came back with amazing amounts of incredible um, imagery and data and just did such an amazing job. And then, you know, it still had enough juice left and enough uh, people interested in it that they were able to uh, retool and have it go to this Kuiper Belt object called uh, Ultima Thule. And so it turns out that that has some pretty amazing secrets of its own. And so, you know, when we first saw pictures of it, we just thought it was two sort of spheres kind of squished together. And, uh, but when they actually looked at the pictures as New Horizons zoomed past, it actually looks more pancake-shaped. And so a photo mosaic taken on the 1st of January, looking back at the object again as New Horizons uh, was going past, was used to trace the shape. Uh, And basically what they did was they used the parts of each image where stars were blocked out on the side of the object that wasn't illuminated by the sun in order to make this composite picture. And so what it suggests is that the smaller lobe is kind of like a walnut, while the larger lobe is more of a sort of very flattened pancake shape. So it's very, very odd. We had an impression of MU69 based on the limited number of images returned in the days around the flyby, but seeing more data has significantly changed our view, Mission Principal Investigator Alan Stern of the Southwest Research Institute said in a statement. It would be closer to reality to say MU69's shape is flatter, like a pancake, he added. But more importantly, the new images are creating scientific puzzles about how such an object could even be formed. We've never seen any, we've never seen something like this orbiting the sun. So it's very cool. Um, And luckily, we will continue to get more information from the spacecraft uh, for well over the next year. It'll continue to send back data. And so hopefully some of that info will give us a better idea of just what the heck is going on with this amazingly cool and faraway object that uh, we've had this wonderful opportunity to get to uh, visit. And so, yeah, like that's so amazing. And NASA has been doing such amazing work. And um, a lot of things have been overshadowing it recently. Um, something that happened this week that I don't really want to talk about um, because I think it's silly and ridiculous to even give it space to be talked about. Uh, Absolutely no pun intended. Um, So yeah, let's just remember how incredibly, incredibly good NASA is at what it does and just kind of hold on to that. (laughs) All right, so let's move on now and talk about a story that came out this week where some people were very like breathless and thought it was this huge, scary thing. And oh God, how could this have happened? Um, And so you may have heard about this. Uh, It was recently revealed that for over 20 years um, or for around 20 years, Three five-gallon paint buckets full of uranium ore were, you know, 
basically tucked away in a corner <laughs> near the taxidermy exhibit at Grand Canyon National Park's uh, Museum Collection Building. Now, the first thing to point out is that this is uranium ore. It's not processed uranium. It's not weapons grade uranium. It's uranium ore. It's what you pull straight out of the earth. And so this already makes it less dangerous than the average person probably thinks about when they hear the word uranium. Now, of course, despite the concerns of Elston Swede Stevenson, uh, who sort of quote unquote broke this story, uh, apparently he's a health and wellness manager at the park's South Rim. According to basically all of the uh, nuclear scientists that have been uh, interviewed by various uh, people in, uh, you know, for various science news outlets, uh, the danger to the average visitor would have been minimal. Even those precious school children who obviously we worry about and who uh, apparently were sitting for 30 minute presentations uh, sort of nearby, they were very likely exposed to no more than the basic background radiation that is all around us all the time. Um, and so, of course, that's always something to remember is that we are actually being uh, sort of irradiated at all times, every moment, just in the atmosphere. There are, you know, stray uh, cosmic rays and things like that. Uh, we do not live in an environment free of radiation at any point um, unless you actually hermetically sealed yourself in a lead-lined box. But even that doesn't work because uh, it turns out that what will happen is that uh, the radiation will hit the lead uh, and actually turn the lead into more dangerous uh, elements. So that doesn't actually work over the long term. Anyways, <laughs> uh, I remember that from when they were talking about how to do shielding for spacecraft, that it turns out that lead is not actually all that great for that, for more than just, you know, um, especially for, for humans, that, you know, it's great to put some, to, to lead line something in order to protect it from other things, but Anyways, that is an aside. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's not really that bad. The amounts of radiation, exp the radiation exposure from natural terrestrial sources and galactic cosmic rays to people living anywhere is far higher than most realize, F. Ward Wicker, a radio ecology expert and professor emeritus at Colorado State University, told Live Science, for instance, uh, in an email, life flourishes in this constant radiation environment because DNA repair mechanisms operate efficiently and rapidly in cells, provided that intensity of radiation exposure is within certain levels. Now, again, obviously that is the key point. What were the levels? And it turns out that the levels were almost certainly not dangerous in the least. And so the ore, first off, mostly emits gamma particles, which are the least dangerous form of radiation. Um, alpha particles, I think, are the most uh, dangerous. I think it goes alpha, beta, gamma. And so um, 
it's really, <laughs> you know, basically I also, you know what this makes me think of is though, is um, you sometimes see the old advertisements for them when, you know, kids in the fifties would get uh, sort of science kits and they were, had all sorts of crazy things in them, like uranium ore, for instance, um, you know, and they all survived for the most part. <laughs> and so, yeah, um, the buckets were initially discovered by a teenager with a Geiger counter back in March of 2018. A subsequent investigation by the Park Service found that direct contact with the ore gave off radiation levels around twice the safe annual dosage allowed by the Nuclear Regulatory Committee. However, moving just five feet away from the buckets led to a reading of zero additional radiation other than standard background levels. And so it turns out that the plastic buckets basically were almost certainly enough shielding to completely render the samples safe for those who were unaware of them being near. Now, the ore has since been relocated to a nearby uranium mine. And of course, there is the idea of how did somebody forget that, that there was uranium ore sitting around somewhere? Well, <laughs> I, you know, I've, I've seen a uh, museum collection or two and, you know, it's not that uh, unbelievable. I have seen things left in places, um, you know, just in everyday life. Sometimes people forget that they've put silly things somewhere, um, you know, potentially dangerous things somewhere. I, you know, humans are like that. So it happened, but everyone should be fine unless you were someone who was standing next to those buckets and actually breathing in uh, the particles from them. And, you know, nobody was doing that. Um, so it's actually slightly more dangerous if you're breathing in those rays um, or the, the particles created by um, the radiation. But again, nobody was doing that, so it's okay. A recent survey of the Grand Canyon National Park's museum collection facility found radiation levels at background levels, the amount always present in the environment and below levels of concern for public health and safety, according to Emily Davis, Grand Canyon National Park Public Affairs Officer. Uh, and she, um, this was during an NPR uh, interview. There is no current risk to the public or park employees. The museum collection facility is open and work routines have continued as normal. Now, of course, it's been suggested that the site should be tested for radon, um, as should most uh, buildings on a periodic basis. Uh, and again, the potential exposure from radon is actually almost certainly higher from the surrounding soil and rocks than from that uranium ore. Uh, because, of course, this is an area that is probably slightly greater in overall radiation because it has things like uranium mines nearby. <laughs> and so, again, there's not anything to panic about. It is just a thing that happened. Everybody's fine. And it's actually a good lesson to learn about the differences in kind of the ideas of things like uranium ore versus actual like elemental um, uranium 
or enriched uranium. You know, these are very different things. And so um, it's really important to remember that and to not panic. And so, yeah. All right. So let's move on to something more fun, less controversial. Um, (laughs) uh, Maybe less controversial. Who knows? And so um, you may have seen videos of this where grapes, uh, you actually slice grapes and heat them in a microwave and it produces sparks. Uh, And so it's a fun little experiment, though I would not actually recommend you do it. Uh, This is the do not try this at home portion uh, because, for instance, you could actually do damage to your microwave. Um, Potentially even worse, but mostly it's probably that you're going to do damage to your microwave. Don't do that. Just watch it on YouTube. (laughs) Watch someone else ruin their microwave on YouTube. So some researchers just wanted to know precisely what exactly was going on there, because it's actually a really interesting thing. Why would putting grapes into a microwave and turning on the microwave make them spark? And I'm talking like actual big you know, you can see the big sparks, they're producing plasma. And so like, what the heck is going on? And so they wanted to know. The paper begins with this fun sentence. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a pair of grape hemispheres exposed to intense microwave radiation will spark, igniting a plasma. Now, I'm pretty sure it's not a truth universally acknowledged, but I still love that sentence. It's a great sentence. Okay, so Pablo Bianucci from Concordia University in Montreal notes that this is a phenomena, again, that has not been studied in detail. Um, And so basically, people have looked at it, but no one's actually gone and done the real scientific research on it. And so the researchers imaged both sliced grape halves and hydrogel beads, which are basically, um, they're they're often sold in sort of the um, florist's area where they're these beads and you put water in them and they absorb the water and then you can put flowers in it and it looks pretty. Um, And so, and they're used for other things obviously as well, but that's kind of the one that I think people mostly would know them from. So they're basically made of this material that absorbs water really well. And so they found that both of these produced the sparks when exposed to electromagnetic fields produced by a microwave. And so it turns out that you don't need the skin of the grape, which some people thought you needed. Uh, you simply need two semi-spherical or spherical objects with enough moisture to be touching. And so the researchers also tested if it was just two spherical or half spherical objects touching that created the effect. So what they did was they took quail eggs, which are quite small, um, and they tried them both with their um, internal, uh, egginess (laughs) inside and after they had been hollowed out. And so the eggs only produced the effect, uh, before their internal contents were removed. So once you hollowed them out, they didn't produce it. They just eventually got burnt, um, if you left them in there. And so it turns out, therefore, that both the geometry of the connection and the moisture are required to produce the effect. 
Now, the electromagnetic field creates resonances concentrated at the point where the two objects connect. And so basically what happens is that it's because it's these, the spherical nature and they're connecting at a certain point, there's something about that that causes um, the reaction and causes the plasma discharge. Now, this may seem like the kind of research that could end up nominated for an ignoble award, uh, but there are actually really important takeaways from this experiment. And so uh, research on directed energy has applications in fields such as high-intensity laser pulses and the work done to actually do the imaging of the electric fields in this sort of physical setup, like a microwave, actually could lead to advances in photonics more generally. Uh, and so because this, basically this phenomenon mimics surface plasma resonances that are generally found only in nanoscale metallic objects, the method can then be used to experimentally model sub-wavelength field patterns using thermal imaging in the macroscopic realm via these kinds of experiments. So basically, you can do models on the you know, macroscopic level of things that generally only happen at the nanoscale level, which is very cool and extremely useful. <laughs> So it actually turns out to be a really kind of a fun and good idea that they did this because they actually found some neat things. Now, of course, this is the time where I again remind you not to do this yourself. It's probably safe, but I haven't done it personally and neither should you. There are plenty of YouTube videos that you can see without having to risk your personal microwave or any kind of safety issues. <laughs> so again, do not try this at home. Uh, <laughs> standard disclaimer, do not try this at home. Um, okay. So here's another really kind of quirky story, not as fun necessarily, but really interesting. Um, I just thought this was, um, I have, I've kind of had this in the back of my list of things to talk about for a couple of weeks and I'm like, I'm eventually going to get to it because it wasn't time sensitive, but it was just, I just, I wanted to share it with you at some point. So researchers have been able to use a photograph of a toppled train in combination with eyewitness accounts to determine the, epi the um, epicenter of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which of course was a 7.9 on the Richter scale. It was huge. It destroyed most of the city. Um, and so it was pretty incredibly awful. But there actually was an upshot to this, despite the fact that, you know, it was basically a giant disaster that killed up to 3,000 people. It actually spurred the creation of modern seismic studies. And so it's really interesting to have sort of full circle come back to doing more research on this earthquake in order to, um, you know, basically come together with that other kind of research that was done um, in order to find the hypocenter. Um, and so it's not the epicenter, I'm sorry, it's the hypocenter, which is the um, place where it was in the earth. Um, and so, yeah, it's really, I think, very cool. 
It's important to understand how these larger quakes occurred so that we can build safer buildings, explained Swartha Veronagovna, postdoctoral research associate in structural com computational science at Idaho National Laboratory. I think these types of eyewitness accounts really help with this. That's why I found the problem really cool. Now, such research has actually been tried before, but a better data set combined with newer modeling software suggested researchers take another try. And so along with the image, the team used a 1907 account of the crash from a conductor's description. And so he said, at Point Reyes Station, at the head of Tamales Bay, the 515 train for San Francisco was just ready. The conductor had just swung himself on when the train gave a great lurch to the east, followed by another to the west, which threw the whole train on its side. The astonished conductor dropped off as it went over, and at the sight of the falling chimneys and breaking windows of the station, he understood that it was the trembler, the tembler. The fireman turned to jump from the engine to the west. When the return shock came, he then leapt to the east and borrowing a Kodak, he took a picture of the train here represented. And so, using this data, the team created a model of the train, basically as a simplified long rectangular prism, and the earthquake as a simple up and down wave motion of the ground. They then determined how much force would be necessary to tip such a large rectangular prism. They found that an acceleration of the ground would have to have been at least four meters per second squared, which is just under half the acceleration for an object falling in a vacuum. Now, there are limitations to the study. For instance, the researchers didn't have a good estimate for the weight of the train. But the paper suggests that the hypocenter, which again is the actual location within the Earth that is below the epicenter that we usually see on a map, must have been south of Point Reyes in order to create the eastward and then westward tipping of the train described by the conductor. This suggests that the hypocenter was either offshore of San Francisco or near the city of San Juan Batista. So really fascinating. Okay. So we are going to take a break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about something that nobody likes, but it's a fascinating story nonetheless. Um, so we're going to come back and talk about stink bugs for a minute. Uh, so please do stay tuned. I promise there'll be other things to talk about after that. Um, and so, yeah, so hang on for just a minute and we'll do some PSAs and some show promos and then we'll come back. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. 
I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Northampton Winter Farmers Market is open every Saturday at the Senior Center on Conn Street. Over 20 vendors offering fresh local produce, dairy, prepared foods, good hot coffee, and more. Northampton Winter Farmers Market, Saturdays 9 till 2 at the Senior Center. For more information, visit NorthamptonWinterMarket.com. See you there. And we are back. Okay, so... We are going to take a moment (laughs) to talk about stink bugs. They're pretty terrible, but uh, there was a new article that came out about them, so I wanted to talk about it a little bit. Now, I I definitely don't like these guys. Um, (laughs) They are, you know, basically incredibly annoying invaders who just, uh, you know, ruin your day the second you see them. And the problem turns out to be that they're pretty darn good at invading. Uh, They are able to squeeze through incredibly small spaces. And so a new paper published in the Journal of Economic Entomology, which, you know, that's one of those things where you think, 
that makes total sense that it exists. And yet it seems so odd <laughs> that it does. Um, but yeah. And so it, they note that based on experimental size and experimental data and size data, we conclude that most H. Hallis individuals will be excluded by slits smaller than three millimeters and holes smaller than seven millimeters. Unfortunately, three millimeters is the width of two dimes and seven millimeters is the length of a long grain of rice. <laughs> so those are pretty small, uh, places. Those are pretty small uh, dimensions. And so what they did was they placed the bugs in small wooden boxes with slits or holes of various sizes, and then heated up the boxes to kind of drive them out uh, in order to figure out the smallest holes that would allow them to escape. Now, unfortunately, those numbers are just a bit smaller than the mesh that is generally used to deter rodent visitors, for instance. Uh, so for now, unfortunately, it seems we are going to have to deal with these guys and hunt them down the old-fashioned way. And so uh, stink bugs are called, uh, they are Heliomorpha hallis, a much too nice name for them, uh, or the brown marmorated stink bug, uh, which is a little better. And so it turns out they actually haven't been here for very long in the U.S., uh, but they've definitely made an impression. And so they were first spotted in Allentown, Pennsylvania, back in 1998, and they most likely hitched a ride in shipping containers from Asia. Um, and they probably would have gotten there, you know, several years before they were actually detected. Unfortunately, since then, they've basically swept across the country and become an agricultural and domestic pest. They impact apples, peaches, sweet corn, peppers, tomatoes, field maize, and soybeans, among other things. And especially in the mid-Atlantic. You know, they started in the mid-Atlantic, so that makes sense. And so... They basically are a scourge across the country now. They can actually cause wine to be tainted. So if it turns out that you have stink bugs, bugs in the grapes, when they're being processed, you can get uh, you, you can get stink bug taint in your wine. Um, in 2010, an outbreak in the mid-Atlantic caused some stone fruit growers to lose 90% of their crop, as well as over $37 million in losses to apples alone. So definitely don't feel bad about them. Uh, definitely kill them whenever you see them, um, because they are really terrible. And unfortunately, it's probably not going to get any better anytime soon. Sigh. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about a completely different kind of animal. Let's talk about a happy animal. Well, she may not be happy, but the fact that we found her is happy. Um, and so we will move on from something we wish we could get rid of to a story about a newly rediscovered animal. Now, I'm not going to talk about the giant bee, though that is very cool. Um, and I think that that is something that, you know, I just didn't have time for tonight, but that is also very cool. Um, and you should look it up. 
Um, I will try and put a link to some info on the Facebook if you haven't already heard about it. But pretty much everybody is talking about the giant bee. So I thought it'd be better to talk about the giant tortoise that they found. Um, and so a female Fernand Fernandina giant tortoise has been discovered in the remote wild of the Galapagos Islands. And so uh, it was an expedition funded by Animal Planet uh, in association with a show called Extinct or Alive, hosted by biologist Forrest um, Gallanty. Now, of course, you know, mixed emotions about these sorts of things, but they found this, you know, amazing animal. So hooray. Um, And, you know, I... I would probably watch this. Um, I, I have a terrible soft spot for these kinds of shows. So, you know, and I think the Animal Planet shows like this are definitely a step up from many other uh, things that are out there. And so the last sighting of a member of this species was back in 1906 when they found a uh, unfortunately deceased male. Now, the tortoise they discovered this time is an extremely old and apparently slightly underweight uh, representative. Uh, she is doing okay, but again, was slightly underweight. Uh, but it shows that they are still out there living, at least a couple of them. Now, she's thought to be at least 100 years old. And she was first spotted on um, Fernadina Island on the 17th of February. And so Animal Planet is working in conjunction with the Galapagos National Park and Galapagos Conservancy to, you know, help work on protecting this critically endangered tortoise. Now, the island is actually volcanically active. And so researchers had worried that La La Cumbre, the island's volcano, had actually caused the demise of the species. The reason no sightings have been made is that for Fernandina is an extremely sparse, remote, and harsh environment, more or less completely inaccessible to most people, Galante told uh, Gizmodo. Additionally, no one from the Galapagos National Parks really believed in its existence, so no resources, resources were put forward to look for the animal. Fortunately, myself and the two scientists I went with still held out hope, and that led to the finding of a super small, isolated patch of suitable habitat, and eventually the animal. And so apparently she'd been hiding from the sun in a pile of brush, and uh, she was positively identified by by the shell morphology and facial features, according to a statement by Animal Planet. And so she's about half to two-thirds the size of the dead male that was found in 1906. Uh, And she's been relocated to the uh, Fausto um, Urena Tortoise Breeding Center, which is a national park facility on the island of Santa Cruz. And uh, she's been given a specially designed enclosure. And so conservationists are cautiously optimistic that they'll be able to find a mate for her uh, because it did seem like there were signs of tortoise scat and track marks found on the island that suggested there was more than one um, tortoise out there. And funds have already been pledged to go out there and do a subsequent foray to the island in search of a bow uh, for her to try and help breed and maybe bring the species back from the brink of extinction. So that is very cool. 
Now, speaking of reptiles, uh, this is just out recently. Uh, researchers are reporting on the discovery of a small species of Tyrannosaurus, um, or a Tyrannosaur, that helps fill in the evolutionary history of one of the world's most well-known species of dinosaur. And so Lindsay Zano, head of the paleontology division at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, first discovered the fossilized remains in 2012 while on a dig in eastern Utah. The fossils turned out to be the right leg of a bipedal predator, and it just happens to be a cousin of the famous T-Rex. Now, this was not the hulking super predator that haunts the nightmares of many. Rather, it was a human-sized dinosaur. Uh, he probably would have been just around six feet tall and weighed around 170 pounds. Now, she was able to determine that the animal had been around seven years old and was therefore basically mature at the time of death by looking at the growth rings in the bones. Basically, um, when reptiles of this kind grow, they get these rings kind of like uh, the rings of, in trees. It's certainly not a very young individual of a very large species, Zano said. She named it Tyrannosaurus moros, after the embodiment of impending doom in Greek mythology, which is, of course, a fitting name for the ancestor of T-Rex. This specimen would have lived around 96 million years ago. That's 30 million years before its larger and scarier cousin would begin to stalk the Earth until the cataclysm or series of cataclysms that ended the reign of dinosaurs. And so again, as we sometimes do when we talk about dinosaurs, we remind people that um, Tyrannosaurus rex didn't actually live during the Jurassic. Uh, it lived during the Cretaceous. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, not during the Cretaceous. Um, it, it was during the... Um, um, now I'm forgetting. I'm so sorry. I lost my train of thought. Let's just keep going with this. Um, and just know that <laughs> Tyrannosaurus rex did not actually live during the Jurassic. Um, but anyways, that's, you know, something that we, I'm sure you've definitely heard before. All right. So this actually, this dinosaur would have lived in the late Jurassic. And so at that time, the large apex predators were members of another well-known dinosaur species, the allosaurs. And so these large-toothed, sharp-clawed behemoths died out sometime in the Cretaceous, which is when the Tyrannosaurus took over as top predator. There we go, the Cretaceous. <laughs> um, and so the transition was a major event, but little is really known about it because despite an abundance of small-bodied species from around 150 million years ago, um, first in Asia and then in North America, little evidence of Tyrannosaurus is found again until the age of T-Rex around 80 million years ago. This makes Moros extremely important to the story. And so um, other than one other skeleton, which we're going to talk about in a second, or fossil, uh, basically, previously, all we had found was teeth. And so we know that, quote, it was a defining event in dinosaur evolution, but we still don't know very much about it, says Steve Brusati from the University of Edinburgh. Um, we're not really, 
sure exactly when it happened, if it happened quickly, or was more of a prolonged battle, or if it happened across the northern continents all at once. And so finding Moros suggests that the transition was compressed into the relatively short span of just 15 million years. And of course, while that doesn't seem like, or that seems like a very long time, it's the fact that it would have required the species to evolve into an animal around a hundred times the dimensions that it was at that point in order to get to the dimensional requirements of a T-Rex. <laughs> and so even though 15 million years seems like a long time, evolutionarily, it's really not. This doesn't completely solve the mystery of why the Tyrannosaurus took over from Allosaurus's, but like a partial fingerprint at a crime scene, it provides important context and helps rule out some theories, Brousset said. Now, Brousset and his team found a similar species of Tyrannosaur in Uzbekistan three years ago. And so they called theirs Timurlegia uh, after the Central Asian conqueror Timur, or Tamerland, uh, as he's usually known in the West. And so this beast would have been around the size of a modern horse and lived around 90 million years ago. There is still a gap of around 10 million years between Timurlingia and Moros and huge tyrannosaurs, uh, Brusetta said, filling that gap and hopefully with more complete skeletons will be the next big breakthrough. Now, meanwhile, Zano is working hard in Utah, where temperatures can reach 130 degrees in the summer. Uh, yikes. But she's made great progress. She's discovered a 30-foot allosaurus named Siots, uh, which is named after a man-eating monster from uh, Ut mythology. Um, and so they're also working currently on describing three new species of dinosaur, and a new turtle. <laughs> so it's really interesting. We're working to uncover an entire new ecosystem, Zano says. And so basically it turns out that this layer of rock is older than those that bear the sort of more flashy uh, Tyrannosauruses and Triceratops and things that you know people are used to seeing um, that are from the Cretaceous. And these fossils are also not, not necessarily as well preserved as some of those upper layers. Um, and so therefore, this part of the puzzle has been understudied, making it prime territory for Zano to basically go out there and make these important finds. And so she hopes to find out why Allosaurus died out during this time. And so it was actually a changing world at this sort of um, change from um, the Jurassic to the Cretaceous. And so uh, it was actually where we had the proliferation of flowers, for instance. Uh, and there was also rising global temperatures and sea levels. And so, um, for instance, Asia and North America were connected. And so species that had been uh, primarily in Asia were expanding into new ranges in North America. And so it may have been some of these or all of these factors that led to the decline of Allosaurus and the rise of Tyrannosaurus. Tyrannosauruses are such iconic predators that people think they somehow outcompeted their rivals and were destined to be the top predators of the day, Zano says. 
but Moros helps us understand that their success was linked to the extinction of Allosaurus. Of Allosaurus. Had that not happened, these tiny animals wouldn't have been able to assume the top predator role. There was no destiny in the ascent of Tyrannosaurids. So that's really interesting. Um, I like the idea of a, um, I still wouldn't want to meet one, but I do like the idea of it nonetheless of, you know, basically uh, uh, chibi <laughs> versions of Tyrannosaurus Rex. Like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, the size of a, a six foot, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex is still going to kill me very quickly. Um, but I like the idea of maybe, you know, going to be able to see it in a zoo. Because, I mean, you know, a bear is going to kill me very quickly or a tiger is going to quick kill me very quickly. But I still kind of want to see them. Um, so, yeah, I think that a tiny uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex would be pretty fun to, to get to see. Um, you know, maybe one the size of a horse. Though, actually, I think... It depends on, you know, the horse as to whether or not they would be the same exact size or different sizes. So, um, yeah, but I do like the idea of smaller versions, um, you know, out there on the plains trying to uh, take down uh, prey. Though, of course, at the time it wouldn't have been plains uh, the way it is now. It would have been a much more rich and lush um, uh landscape because of course at this time there was a lot more um there was a lot more uh pre precipitation out in the west uh you know there's the great inland sea that happens and things like that so um it would have been very different from what it is now it would not have been a harsh 130 um degree days at least in that respect all right so it is that time where I need to stop talking. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I hope that you all have a great week and I will be back next week with more science and skepticism. So uh, do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.